Okay, if you'd like to read along with us, we will once again be in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. And I anticipate this is the next to the last sermon on our subject of the series, Solomon and the Queen. Solomon and the Queen. 1 Kings chapter 10, reading at verse 1. And when the Queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom in the house that he had built, and the meat of his table, and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel, and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believe not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighteth in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord hath loved Israel forever, therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. And she gave the king an hundred and twenty talents of gold, and of spices very great store, and precious stones. There came no more such abundance of spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir brought in from Ophir great plenty of almond trees and precious stones. And the king made of the almond trees pillars for the house of the Lord. And for the king's house harps also and psalteries for singers. There came no such almond trees nor were seen unto this day. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. Obviously, those of you that have been with us in some or all of these sermons know that we're looking at this as a similitude, comparative resemblance of Solomon as Christ from Matthew twelve forty-two. Christ's own words are greater than Solomon is here. And the queen being resembling sinners who come to Christ. And let's just review a little bit about the things said of the queen, which are also true of sinners who come to Christ. This has been our study for several messages now. And the queen, first of all, heard about Solomon. She came to see what she had heard about. She also came to prove with hard questions. She came with a great, very great train, gifts, valuables. And then when she arrived, and it says when uh, she came to Solomon, so verse very personal there, verse 2, she personally communed with him and she also saw some things. The house or temple that he had built as well as things in his kingdom. 
So she saw his wisdom, literally could see it in a sense by audibly hearing it from his lips, and then also saw that wisdom in action or being manifest as it was applied into the kingdom. And that's very important because what use is wisdom if it's in a vessel with a lid on it and it doesn't benefit anybody? Wisdom, knowledge, understanding, truth is meant to be spread abroad for the benefit of those who are willing to consume it or have an appetite for it. And then we see the effect of all of this on her was that it was as if there was no spirit left in her. She was so humbled, so much in awe, so much in astonishment at really what could sum up in two things, the greatness and the goodness of Solomon, his kingdom, and his wisdom. And so all of these things that I've just said is typical of sinners. And if all of these things that were true of her are true of a sinner, then that sinner is saved by grace and is a part of the kingdom. If at any point that succession stops, and as we said, usually it stops with the fact that sinners may hear, they may come, they all have hard questions, they all bring their own self-righteousness. We've all done that. And then usually that's where it stops. If there's no personal, intimate communion and bearing of the heart and of the soul in repentance to Christ, then that's where it ends with sinners in God. And like the rich young ruler, they're not willing to make that sacrifice, that commitment, and they turn and go back to where they come from. However, when there is that personal communion, as we preached in a previous message, that intimacy with Christ, that confession of sin, that faith in Christ as our substitute for sin, then other things follow thereafter. She not only heard the wisdom of Solomon, but she saw it implemented. People who believe in Christ to this day, even this day, who place faith in Christ, still see his wisdom through the scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit and can still witness and testify of that wisdom in action in his kingdom and through his church, and should. And God still uses those same means today in calling out and saving sinners, his elect. Well, we see then, and we've discussed before, that based on all of this, she makes a wonderful confession in verses 6 and 7. Let's look at that briefly again, and then we want to pursue what's said after that. In verse 6 and 7, she says, It was a true report I heard in my own land of thy acts, thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came, and mine eyes had seen it. Behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. And we made comment numerous times in these messages before how that is a similar confession that sinners make when they believe upon Christ and place their faith in Christ. 
Uh, all of us who are believers today can say, yeah, I heard about it. I didn't believe it. I came to prove it. I came to test it. But when I believed in it, it was above and beyond more than I ever dreamed and heard and imagined that it could be and continues to be so. Christ is more than I thought he was. He's better than I thought he could be. His goodness and his greatness continues to amaze me. All of those things that were emphasized by the queen here and confessed by her concerning Solomon are magnified infinitely number of times by all believers in their relationship with Christ. But a point I want to make is it was and is a wonderful and marvelous confession that she makes in verses 6 and 7. Likewise, it is with sinners. I want to remind you in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, the Bible says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So we see the relationship in those verses between believing and confessing Christ. And a confession is worthless except there be faith in Christ from the heart. The devils confess. The devils believe. So a confession can be cheap. It can be a fraud. It can be a fake. It can be true, but not enough in that sense. And that's why it would be a fake or a fraud. Because if one believes not the heart and they only confess with the mouth, that's superficial. It starts in the heart. So the queen makes this confession that she was in a state of unbelief. And now having seen, experienced, heard, and all of this... She now believes it, which is typical of what sinners do. And she cannot comprehend the greatness and goodness of it. That's the confession of a believer. Okay? So a true confession stands on faith in Christ. And without it, it's just nothing but a confession. A moving of the mouth, uh, uttering of something that is not heartfelt or convicted. What I want to address today is verses 8 and 9, which we will address in one of two ways. And I don't care which. As we read this, we could say that it is a continuation of her confession. I wouldn't argue with that. Or we could say it is a second or latter confession. It is different from verses 6 and 7. And it's greater than the verses 6 and 7. It has verses 8 and 9 more depth than verses 6 and 7 confession. There's a deeper insight from her in what she says in 8 and 9 than what she said in 6 and 7. There's a broadness in the following two verses that are not into 
found in the first two verses. And I would sum it up kind of by saying that verses 8 and 9 show she has a greater understanding of grace and goodness than she mentioned in verses 6 and 7. So however you read it as a continuation of a confession or a latter and different confession doesn't really matter. As long as we can make the distinction that 7 and eight, or 8 and 9 is better than and gets better than and progresses from 6 and 7. An illustration of this I think I can give you that may help you on this is if you look back to verse 5. Part of what she saw was not only the temple that he built, but in verse 5, she sees there, notice, the servants, the ministers, the cupbearers, these who are individuals, men, women, serving in Solomon's kingdom, right? She acknowledges those things. So she saw them there, and she saw them occupied in their work, right? The doing of their various ministries. But when she begins verse 8, she says, Happy are thy men, thy servants, that stand before ye and continually hear thy wisdom. So she saw them working and doing previously, but in verse 8, she sees the blessedness of that doing. Do you get the distinction? It's one thing to see somebody do something. It's quite another to see somebody enjoying what they're doing. Or being blessed by what they're doing. We all do things. Some we do out of duty, some we do because we have to, but not because we like to. And then there is the quote-unquote blessedness of enjoying certain things that you do. So this is a natural progression. She saw him doing it, but in verse 8, she sees that it is a blessed thing to do it. This is like some people, anytime you mention work, oh, it's just horrible, it's just bad, it's just, it's just this, that, and other. And they don't realize there's some people that are hindered, handicapped, too old, or sick, or whatever, that can't work, that would love to have the physical ability to work. There's some people don't have a mental capability to work, even though they may have physical strength to work. And so while others go through life moaning, groaning, griping, and complaining, which we have all to some degree, about having to work, the bottom line is work's a blessing. This is not by subject, but I'm going to throw another two or four cents in here right quick. I was talking to somebody recently. The state of things, the world, the kids, the, the shootings of things and all of this. And I told somebody, I said, I'll tell you what. There's a huge portion, I don't know what portion, but a large portion of our society's problem, particularly our young people, can be solved by one thing, and I believe it with all my heart, hard work. God made us to work. When he sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, it was to work. 
And, you know, to accept that, that that's the way of life, and that if you don't work, you don't eat, and to arrive at a contentment with that, there's a blessedness in that. There's a blessedness in it. It's all in what are you employed in doing? What's the purpose of it? Well, let me tell you, there's nothing greater than the work for the Lord. It's one thing to work for self. That's what we naturally do. But to be employed in the service of the Lord, there is no better work. And she sees here that while she was a queen, she brought an entourage. She probably had servants, ministers, cupbearers, and everything that Solomon had. But she saw the blessedness of being able to work in Solomon's kingdom to serve under somebody as great and good as him rather than anybody else. So that's what we're talking about when we say this confession in 8 and 9 has greater depth, insight, broadness, and understanding and more meaning in that because it exemplifies exactly what happens to a person who has believed on Christ and experienced conversion in Christ like what she experienced with Solomon. When it initially happened with her here, whatever her relationship was with, with Solomon here as far as communing with him and all the questions, all that, and that just left her flabbergasted. That was one thing. Her focus was on Solomon and on his wisdom that she heard and that she saw implemented. And then it's like her, rise, her eyes opened up more that she saw these people in the kingdom and saw what they were doing, just like we would look at ants at an anthill or, or something like that. But then she saw the blessedness of it. She is able to see deeper. And this is just like you and I. And think back if it's not true. That when we were converted and we came to Christ and we believed and we were saved by grace, it was an intimate, personal thing, right? I mean, you know, the Lord died for me. The Lord has saved me and redeemed me by His blood. But that's all we knew, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. That's where you start, as a newborn child of God, a new convert. But you don't stay there. At least we hope not. People progress, and it's called sanctification. And so you start out seeing Christ as Savior, and it's just you and Him. But then you learn what? You're part of something a lot bigger, aren't you? You're not the only one. Christ is King, and He has a kingdom, and you're one of many subjects. And Christ built a church and we're baptized and we become a part of that church and it's in and through the church that we serve in the kingdom of Christ, right? And we're part of something bigger and we do it with other people and so forth and so on. And we realize then, oh yeah, I'm also an adopted child. I'm in the family of God, the household of faith, right? But those things come after you're saved, don't they? They don't come before you're saved. They come after. And so these things she's saying in 8 and 9 naturally must come after what's said in verse 6 and 7 or else they become meaningless. 
Let me read a portion of Scripture I think will make this crystal clear. It does in my mind. I hope it does in yours. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 19. Ephesians 3, reading at verse 14. Paul says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Okay, so all this is sanctification. Notice this. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, which that's what happens when a sinner is saved. That ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. I'm not going to preach from this text, but just notice there's words in there that speak of progression, that speak of increase, all right? Rooted and grounded. Something that's rooted continues to to grow. Able to comprehend, learn more. More of what? The breadth, the length, the depth, the height. And to know, to know what you don't know. The love of Christ, something that passes common or ordinary knowledge and to be filled. You can't be filled if you're already full. There's a void, an empty spot. There's a capacity for the fullness. All that's sanctification. It's the depth of things. And when it says the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, what are we talking about here? Well, put it anything you want to. We're talking about our redemption. We're talking about our salvation. We're talking about the grace of Christ. And we're talking about the love of God. Which again, can't be measured by breadth, length, depth, and height. The spiritual things of God are immeasurable in any direction. So we see the blessedness in this. In the believer to continue in our relationship with our Lord. She says, happy, and the word happy here means blessed. They are blessed. They are continually before you and hear your wisdom. Well, likewise, the believer. We're saved by grace, but we don't know the blessedness of our salvation. We have to work it out. And we learn about all God has done, is doing, will do, but He always purposed to do in our redemption. That's what we're talking about. And so we go deeper into what it means to be saved. That God loved, God chose, God gave, God gives, God draws, God calls, and all those wonderful things. And so the depth of our salvation becomes deeper in that. And then we've got a different confession than just saying, I believe in Jesus and He's my Lord and Savior. That's about all a sinner knows and can say when he's first saved. But oh, we can add to that as we learn, can't we? Oh, so many other things the Scripture teaches us by the Holy Spirit. And again, how can we not see this that when it says, stand continually before thee. You realize today that Again, as a child of God, what a blessing it is to be a part of the kingdom of God. 
What a blessing it is to serve Him. He don't need us. He can do what He wants to without you, without me, without this church. But He has chosen to employ us in His service to His honor to serve Him. I think of the words of Paul, you once were servants of sin, now you're servants of the Most High God. Can you label anything that's greater than to be a servant of the Most High God? I mean, it's it's synonymous with being an adopted child of God, to being in the family of God, to being in the kingdom of God. I mean, the blessedness of it and the fact that we can stand continually before Him. Jesus Christ is our intercessor. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Therefore, we can, as the writer says, come boldly to the throne of grace any time of the day, any time of the night, any kind of situation, any kind of circumstance. We can do that. These servants were continually before Solomon day in and day out. What a privilege just to be in his presence. What a privilege it is to commune with God by the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. What a blessing it is to come to church and to fellowship with God's people where God meets with his people on this earth. And by the way, that's the only place he meets with his people on this earth is in his church because unto him be glory through the church to all ages world without end. And that hear thy wisdom. You hear the wisdom of God. When you read your Bible, you ought to hear the wisdom of God. When you hear me or anybody else preach and teach the truth of God's word, you're hearing the wisdom of God. What did she do? What is she saying here about these servants? They're in his presence and therefore they hear the wisdom. You can't hear God's wisdom if you don't come into His presence. And church is where you come into His presence. Private study, private prayer. This is when you come into His presence. And then she makes a statement there. And let me say again, this part of this confession, verse 8 and 9, cannot come before verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7 is the more personal confession she had. Now she's looking bigger, broader, deeper and seen more of the scope, I would say, of the greatness and goodness in Solomon. So likewise it is us with believers. Verse 9 confession (coughs) is all about glorifying God for what she already believed about God. And this is what sinners do. Again, it's dealing with grace and goodness. Let's read verse 9. We'll launch into it, and that'll be the remainder of our message. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighted in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. Now, that statement is something not everybody's going to know, believe, see, or say. I don't know if old Hiram saw this. I think he did because he made some statements uh, that indicate it. But, but who around Solomon's, his neighbors, his neighboring kingdoms, could make a statement like this and believe it? Not just a fact, but really believe it. There's depth in what she's saying because she's glorifying God for it. You know where most people get hung up? On Solomon. (laughs) Most people couldn't see past Solomon. His words, his wisdom in action in his kingdom, 
all the gold, all the greatness, all the animals it took to feed everybody, all the efficiency of the kingdom, all that most people humanly would never get past that. That's human nature. But believers don't stop there. Believers like Job, as they grow in grace, see beyond people, beyond people's status, beyond people's knowledge, beyond people's wealth, beyond people's accomplishments, and see what? God is behind the scenes. And it's just like Nebuchadnezzar. He was a king, wasn't he? But he was not the same king after he converted was he? What's those wonderful words? Now I extol the God of heaven who has his way in heaven, who has his way on the earth, who's able to lift up, who's able to tear down. I mean, he saw so much more of God, didn't he? He lip serviced God before. Remember that without going into it through Daniel. No. Oh yeah, he confessed things about God before, but he never believed in his heart. And once he believed in his heart, he had a whole different story. So it is here. Blessed be the Lord thy God. And this is just like grammar school in high school or, or uh, grade, uh, junior high in high school. If you take these phrases and just set them apart by themselves, and analyze them and organize them and put them into order, man, this is, this is uh, my, my amazing what she says here. Blessed be the Lord thy God. There's, there's the motive for this confession. It is a glorifying and acknowledgement of the grace and goodness of God. This is what you do and I do when we pray. When we say, thank you, Lord, you know, that we are blessing God. When you are thankful to God, when you acknowledge God, when you say God in the Bible and you tell Him, Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to me and showing me your grace and your goodness, whether it's in the creation or in your Son or through your church or by the Holy Spirit, whatever it is, thank you, God. We're blessing God. We're glorifying God. We're praising God. We're worshiping God in that. And this is where she starts, Blessed be the Lord thy God. God. So it is a glorifying. And she is blessing God for who He is and what He has done. And in this confession, she tells us and says what He did and why He did it. Numerous things in there, aren't you? She says, this God, your God, delighted in you. He set you on the throne of Israel. He made you a king, and He made you king to do judgment and justice. But where we start, and where I'm going to start, is with the reason for all that. And that's in the middle. Because the Lord loved Israel forever. Now, when you talk about God blessing people, especially sinners in the manner of salvation and redemption... There's only one place to start. It all starts with God's love. If God was not love, and if God did not set His love upon certain individuals, nothing else would be true that is said about the elect of God. If the Lord had not loved Israel, 
then Solomon's existing would be existence would be nothing. Nothing. He'd just be another king over another group of people. But God did special things to him, for him, in him, through him, because of what? He was the seed of Abraham. God made a promise to a man named Abraham way back. It all started way back. So again, it's just like our salvation. When you were saved, it didn't start there. It started a long time back, a long time ago. Way back. As long as there's been God, your redemption has been a work in progress. That's pretty amazing. So, the love of God. Why did God... The Bible says the Lord loved Israel forever. There's one verse of Scripture in Jeremiah 31, 3 proves that. Yea, I have loved thee with the everlasting love, and with loving kindness have I drawn thee. And that love that God has is exemplary for anything or anybody that He does love. And in other words, God only has one kind of love. It's an everlasting love. Oh, how we wish ours were that way, Right? Oh, love is so cheap when it's put into human hands and human words and human hearts and human actions. But God only has one kind of love. It's everlasting. He has loved Israel forever and He will love Israel forever. He loves His own forever. He's always loved Him. He will always love Him. God doesn't add love along the way. What he's loved, he's always going to love. What he's hated, he's always going to hate. There are no exchanges between the love and hate when it comes to the essence and being and purpose of God. That's God. So it began with his love. And he said, of all nations of the earth, you only have I chosen to be a holy nation, a peculiar people, the seed of Abraham. Moses reminded the children of Israel of that in Deuteronomy 14 and 2. And because God loved Israel, then God did for Israel. Here's the difference again in human love and God's love. God's love is perfect. And God manifests His love, whereas we fail to manifest our love many times, even though it may be real love. But a lot of human love is not love at all because there is nothing to follow. Love manifests itself. Just like faith has works, love has action. Cheapest thing in the world, say, I love you. It's the cheapest thing in the world. I mean, you might as well spit on the ground. That's about what it amounts to if it's not from the heart, if it's not true. In fact, it's worse than that. Spit won't do no harm, but you telling somebody you love them when you don't is a deception and a lie and misleading. So it does a lot more harm. But the Lord loved Israel. And what the Lord loves, He does for. He bestows grace upon. He blesses what He loves in that regard. And the next thing is, in fact, you know, you've heard it so many times, but let me say it. Let me not pass up an opportunity. God sent His Son. God gave His Son, the greatest manifestation of love there ever has been, ever will be. God didn't say, I love you. God showed us 
He loved us. How did he do that? By giving not one of his sons, but the only begotten son. For who? For sinners. Ungodly, rebellious sinners. That, folks, is love. Because the Lord loved, what does it say? He delighted in thee. And if you're a child of God, you've got to delight in the word delight. He delighted in thee. What, what does it mean to delight in thee? You know, sometimes we say, I'm just delighted to that. Well, you're talking about taking pleasure in something. I mean, just the greatest pleasure there is. I am delighted that you said that, did that, you know, gave me that. Uh, whatever it was, to delight in something is to take the greatest pleasure in. And God delighted in Solomon. God delighted in Israel because, first of all, God loved Israel. Love is the fountain where all other things flow. And delighting or taking pleasure in is what God did with Solomon and with Israel. Let me give you a very brief, concise definition of what it means to delight in thee. I think it's found in Genesis 6 and 8 for the first time. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That didn't mean Noah was a good person and different from all the rest of the people that he lived among except by the grace of God. But it simply means God showed favor unto him. God took pleasure in him. And the reason he would and could and did do that was because God loved him. And it's a wonderful thought to you and me today, is it not? That if God loves you, He delights in you. He delights in you. The next thing it said there is uh, that He made the king. And we covered this. I'm going to be brief here, but He did. God made Solomon king. You remember Adoniah? His elder brother who was trying to be the king and looked like humanly would be the king. But God providentially intervened and his elder brother didn't become king, did he? Solomon became king. So again, there were things it seemed like in motion that would not allow Solomon to be king with David in his condition and this son wanting to be king, but God had promised David he would be king, and providence took care of every bit of it. God made him king. In other words, if we'd have just left it to human hands, he wouldn't have been king. God orchestrated that. God's providence brought it to pass. Another note, though, here, before we get to the next part, it says, set thee on the throne is this. You can be made a king and not be on a throne. I think that's why these two things are distinct. Think about David himself. Samuel anointed him when he was a boy. Did he not? As what? King. The king. He was the king over Hebron for seven years or something. Uh, and then he became king over all Israel the next 33 years. But when he was king initially he didn't have a throne did he he was wearing the title of king but running around like a rabbit being chased by a pack of hounds with Saul and his armies wasn't he you see what I'm saying 
So it's one thing to be made a king, coronated a king, anointed a king, or given the title of a king, but if you don't have a throne and a kingdom, you may not be much of a king. Huh? So one is a status and one is an implementation. So he not only made him king according to prophecy, but he also ended up setting the anointed king on the throne. David had to wait a long time. Solomon didn't have to wait no time at all. So that's important, I believe. And why did he do this? Oh, he just wanted to bless Solomon and Solomon have a good life and a happy life. No, no. God doesn't bless us just to make us happy or giddy or whatever. God blesses us that we may bless him and bless others. It's an instrument. What does it say? To do judgment and justice. And I've got to show you this. I've got to take the time to read this. In Psalms chapter 72, verse 1 and 2, this is a psalm of David and a request for Solomon. And God did it. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. Let's go back to what we said earlier. What if God did, as he did, give Solomon all this wisdom, but then just let him put a lid on it? What good would that have done? Well, he could have went down in history as the wisest man that ever was because the Bible said so, but nobody could prove it because the wisdom was all shut up. No, we've got it written in Scripture. We've got Proverbs. We've got Ecclesiastes. And we've got the record. And we've got the manifestation of it. We've got descriptions of the house he built. The queen came and saw the kingdom and saw all that was going on. And we've got, uh, you know, we're told here about the gold and the silver and the almond trees and all of this. No, that wisdom wasn't shut up. That wisdom was manifested. And it was manifested to the benefit of others. Again, what good is wisdom if it's not shared? What good is wisdom if it's not given out, meted out for others? That's why it's here. We have here the Bible. This is God's wisdom. That's why it's so good for us. That's why it nourishes us. So he didn't, the point is, he didn't make him king. He didn't love him. He didn't delight in him. He didn't set him on the throne just so Solomon could glorify God in his own way and be happy. No. It was for the people, Israel, whom he loved. And we could say the same thing today. Why does God call preachers? So they can be above everybody else in the family of God, in the kingdom? No. Preachers are here for the people of God. It's a role. Solomon where was for the people to do judgment of justice for God's people, not for himself. Okay? Let's wrap this up with the similarities here that are in Christ. First of all, we read before, we didn't read it today, but I've told you before, the Bible literally says God loves Solomon. Okay? God loved Israel is our point here that the queen acknowledges well, God loved his son, didn't he? And there's nothing we could say that he could love any more or was any more worthy of God's love than his only begotten son. Now, everything else that God loves is really not worthy to be loved, is it? 
You're not worthy to be loved. I'm not worthy to be loved. There's nobody in the human race worthy to be loved. We're not worthy or deserving of God's love. The only begotten Son is. And Christ mentioned that in John 17, 23, and 24 about the love that thou lovest me with. The love that you had for me and with me before the foundation of the world. Meaning again, it was an eternal love. It's the most perfect love there ever was in the sense that Christ the Son was worthy of the Father's love. Now His love for us is also perfect, but not in that sense because we were unworthy of His love. But as He loved the Son, so He loves us. That was Christ's prayer. Okay? The only difference being Christ was worthy and we're not. And not only did God love His Son, and again, we can't begin to comprehend the depth of God's love to us, much less to His Son. But because He loved the Son, He delighted in Him. Look at these scriptures with me and let's rejoice before we finish here. Psalms chapter 22 is a messianic psalm. It speaks prophetically of the things concerning Christ. Verse 8 says that they would say, literally at the cross they did, He trusted in the Lord that He would deliver Him, let Him deliver Him, seeing He delighted in Him. The Father delighted in the Son, the Son delighted in the Father. We know that from what the Scripture says. Uh, while I'm in Psalm, let me just turn back a page or two. There's another Psalm right there in the 18th chapter in verse 19. Let me read that to you quickly. It's so close. David says here, He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because He delighted in me. That's also prophetically applied to Christ. Uh, Psalms also chapter 40 and verse 8 says... I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is written within my heart. Christ constantly said he came here to do the Father's will exclusively. How do we know that the Father delighted in the Son? Well, there's two outstanding occurrences. At his baptism, what happened? Not only did the Spirit of God descend from heaven like a dove, but God the Father spoke and said what? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. He uttered almost the same declaration on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The next thing we see is that he made him king. Christ was a king when he was here on the earth. He was as I would say to you for brevity here and also to be accurate, he was like David. David, when he was king, was being pursued by Saul. He didn't have a throne, did he? But he still wore the title of king. Christ was a king when he was here. He was a prophet. He was a priest. He was a king. His kingship has not been yet manifested, but he was a king. And Providence saw to it that the world knew that because Pilate, Pontius Pilate, wrote it on an inscription, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, and it hung over the head of our Lord when he was crucified. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. That declaration, God providentially, through that wicked man Pilate, made known to the whole world. He had it hanging 
over his head. He did not come to be a king then, although he was a king. They wanted to make him a type of a worldly king. That was not the type of king he was going to be that time. He came to be a servant. He came to be a savior. One day, he's going to be a king in a different way in that he will be king manifested. Quickly, I'm going to read this and we're done. Read you the scriptures that I'm sure you're familiar with in the book of Psalms, chapter 2, verse 6. That psalm says, Yea, have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Psalms 110 The Lord said unto my Lord, Set thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Luke chapter 1 and verse 32, Jesus will one day sit upon the throne of his father David. That throne is promised him. Right now he's sitting at the right hand of the father's throne. But one day his kingship will be manifested when he sits on this earth on David's throne. I'm going to wrap this up with a personal application to you. Four things said there concerning Solomon that's true of Christ. God loved him. God delighted in him. God made him king. God promised him a throne. Are those things true of you today? Does God love you? Does he delight in you? Has he made you a king? Has he made you a, a promised you a throne to set on? Well, let's start with the first one. It's very simple. How does a person know if God loves them or not? How do you know if God loves you? It's very easy. Do you love God? If you can honestly, with heartfelt conviction and honesty, say that you love God, you love the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? I can tell you on the authority of Scripture, you only love Him because He first loved you. That's what the Bible says. That's how you know if God loves you. Don't read through this book to see that your name is somewhere and God says, I love you, so-and-so, so-and-so. No, you're not going to find that. But if you love God, that's the surest way of knowing He already loved you. And if He loves you, He delighted in you. And He does delight in you. As an adopted son or daughter, as one for whom Christ died, as one for whom He chose and gave to the Son, to redeem, He delights in you. If you don't love God, then perhaps God doesn't love you. And instead of delighting you, guess what? He's angry with you every day because of your sin. Are you a king? Say, I don't feel like a king. I don't know what it's like to be a king. Even God's people don't can say or do say that, don't we? But the Bible says. In Revelation chapter 1, as surely as He loved us, called us, washed us, redeemed us, He has made us kings and priests unto God. It's His designation. I'm not sitting on a throne, are you? But you know what? Something is promised us because the Bible says when Christ comes to rule and reign from His throne, we're going to rule and reign with Him. So we have that promise also. So again, it's just marvelous to see this confession that the queen made. That it was true of Solomon. It's more greatly true of Christ. And it can also have an application to you and I as the children of God. May God bless his word.